Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. And this is a podcast where we read things and we talk about them. Uh, and sometimes when those things can see us reading them, as is the case with the that makes no sense if you haven't been reading along with us, and I sound like I've lost my mind, uh, but it makes perfect sense if you have been reading along with us, because of course, we're talking about Animal Man Volume 3, Deus Ex Machina, written by Grant Morrison, uh, drawn largely or perhaps entirely by De- Chaz Chuag and Doug Hazelwood. I think it's safe to say that if you thought that Morrison was dipping their toe into the metafiction pond, they pretty much just like dive right in and start swimming around because it's like extremely metafiction. This last issue in particular is, I think, a kind of notorious or famous at least, but notorious might be the word amongst comic readers. It's, uh, I don't think it's universally loved. I like the ending of this a lot. I'm not sure too. And we'll talk about it as we go. I think there's two things. One, the metadata. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> metadata. I'm a librarian. You have to excuse me. Yes, Andrea's a librarian and she's also my mom. I don't know why you would be listening to the third part of this Animal Man series and not any other episodes of her podcast. But if you didn't know that, now you know that. But what I was going to say is that I think there's two things that kind of could put people off about this final volume. One is the intense... Metafiction slash comment on comics continuity, and two like this really harsh treatment that he gives to Animal Man, who is like a sort of a really lovable character, and like the tragedy that he deals with is kind of yeah. That's what I was getting at. That's the part I don't love is some of the harsher things that happen to Animal Man and his supporting cast. In this, what I do like is that metafiction stuff. I think, though, more than anything, when people uh, ding this volume and that last issue in particular, it's as being kind of a cop out, which they cop to in the context of the issue. But and I don't think it's a cop out. I think the comic is clearly building to that moment, basically from issue five onward, right from the Coyote Gospel. Right, yes. this comic, this volume essentially ends with. Animal, the like, we got the gospel according to Scrafty, and now we get the gospel according to Buddy. And I think one thing that it does nicely is it really, I mean, every loose end is tied up, no matter how weird or obscure that loose end is. He, you know, he, Buddy, you know, comes to a complete closure, and the series is definitely finished. Yeah, yeah. So, I guess we just want to get into it? Well, let's, I mean, it's pretty... Standard, so it's how do you say it? Deus Ex Machina? Deus Ex Machina, which I guess is Latin. Is the god from the machine, and it's a term you know used for when a uh, generally a heretofore unmentioned supernatural force comes in and resolves the plot. It comes from Greek drama. Uh, everybody probably knows this. I don't know why I'm explaining. Yeah, and this I think people. it's like also at the time like the. 
hugely popular synchronicity album is out at the same oh, time yeah. and then, you know the whole ghost in the machine so it's issues 18 to 26 published in 1989 to 1990 and then like here's my synopsis that i wrote in my notes Things go off the rails for Buddy. GM doubles down on the metafiction, and it's all about a cat. Yeah. Well, I mean, we get the first... When you open the the collection that we have, you kind of get your first taste of what's going to happen. Because the cover is Buddy, and the bottom half of his legs is turning into text. And then behind him is a field of infinite Grant Morrison's. <laughs> it's funny, though, because Bowen comes back to do this cover. This, I believe, is original for this volume. Uh... And Bolin draws Morrison as they look now, but at the end of the comic, we see Morrison as they looked at the time that this... What I'm getting at is we see bald Morrison on the cover, and we get to see uh, hair-having Morrison in the comics. It definitely has this sort of, like, late 80s collage artwork. Yeah, which you get to see... I think that's a thing that Bolin is into, because he uses that technique on some of the... The covers we see inside the volume that are for the actual issues when they came out. Like, the cover for this issue 18 is a, is a buddy rendered as like a white silhouette in front of a field of animal heads. And again, it's sort of like a collage image, except it's like a weird, like reverse cheat where Voland has to draw all the images in the collage rather than just copy yes. and paste, you know, cutting and pasting them together. Uh, but yeah, so it starts off with this, like, flash forward, basically, where something bad has happened, and Buddy is, like, dazed. It's told from first person. And Roger, uh, is give. oh, so the end of the previous volume was Buddy quits being Animal Man, and then comes home and sees John Highwater, like, in his house, collapsed on the floor with the bottom half of his body getting erased. Right, and this picks up right at this point. Uh, Buddy and Ellen are talking to Highwater. But we know something bad is going to happen. Buddy's going to be dazed, and Roger's going to try to offer him some water. And then it cuts to, like, the screen of a word processor, and then we get a bit of the script as narration overlaying uh, Ellen filling up a glass of water. So... In the midst of the conversation between Highwater, Ellen, and Buddy, Highwater shows Buddy what he thinks is the cartoon illustrations that he got from the Psycho Pirate in Arkham, but it has turned into a map leading them to a mesa in Arizona. And Highwater says he's going to go there, and Buddy decides he's going to go there with him. Yes, also important in this sequence, uh, he goes to say goodbye to his family, and Cliff is wearing a Lestat Lives shirt with yes, sleeves cut off. of course. And so he realizes, because he brings up, Buddy brings up, like, oh, like, I saw that thing, whatever was happening with your legs, I saw this in Africa, and it's, like, hard to look at, and it's clear that he's, like, beginning to broach this idea of, like, the bounds of reality, and he realizes that, like, everything has been leading up to this, and he has to go with high water on his... Well, what we learn is a vision quest, basically. Yeah. So he says goodbye to his family, which once you read more, becomes even more poignant. So, you know, of course, Ellen tells him to be careful. and So they go off. Yeah. And they arrive at the Mesa and immediately find, did you guess, peyote buttons? 
a lot of peyote buttons. Yes. So I see, if you did guess that, then I see you've read other Grant Morrison comics before. <laughs> um, and also other comics from around this time period. I mean, this kind of shit happens in Swamp Thing, too. Yes. Yeah. So they don't know who left these buttons there, but they're there. Because naturally, if you saw a mound of peyote buttons on the top of a mesa, and you're on a quest for information, you would definitely take them, well, some, they or all. sit around until sunset when they realize nothing's happening. Uh, Buddy is like, well, they were here. Like, we maybe we someone left them for us, and we need to take them. So they take them, and... The basically the rest of the issue is this wild psychedelic trip that the two of them have, where the universe opens up to them and they see like all of the planets and there's a giant eyeball in the sky, uh, and the fox shows up, who has been a recurring symbol throughout the comic. I I just have a question about Doctor Highwater. Is he Native American? Uh, yes. Okay, okay, so that makes sense because there's a lot of Native American imagery. In what Highwater sees. Yeah, when he, when the eagle shows up, he talks about, like, my grandfather told mm-hmm. me about it. He's, he's, uh, Native American and, you know, and also a physicist, so he has a particularly, uh. It's kind of like Morrison was like, what is the scientist that would be least open to, like, weird supernatural things? And he picked this physicist, because, like, Highwater doesn't do any, Anything that he does in the comic is not related to his job as a physicist. No. Other than, like, reality keeps getting shifted and he keeps going like, what? Yeah, but I think that, like, I think that choice is deliberate to make him, like, a skeptic. Mm -hmm. In contrast to Buddy, who is not, like, totally accepting of the more metaphysical stuff, but is much more of, like, a go-with-the-flow kind of character. Is this also the issue where Buddy learns that he doesn't, because he's connected to the morphological field, he doesn't need to be in contact with the animals, which is what he thought in the beginning of the series. You know, where he had to, like, search around for contact with the animals to gain their powers. Now he realizes after the second reboot of himself where he is enhanced, he can just think about the animals and get their powers. Yeah, so through Buddy and Highwater's visions, we the comic lays out this thesis that... The morphogenetic field, the thing that Buddy is tapped into, the aboriginal dream time and the collective unconscious, and there's other other concepts too of this like world apart from the waking world and this connection between people and living creatures are actually all the same thing. They're all attempts to understand this single single concept, and that Buddy is tapped into that, so he. I guess he had a, like, he felt like he needed to be near the animals because that helped him feel the fields, but he actually has unlimited access to the sort of, like, archetypal powers of every animal on Earth. And then, like, later on, it basically ends up including, like, people, too. Right. Like, Buddy is kind of like, he's, he's kind of everything. He is the universe as a person. He's the animal man. But yeah, so like we see like these, uh, like a megalith with these like pictorial drawings and he sees like a warning of like this coming crisis and all of these like worlds intersecting on a person. Uh, but then he also sees these like spirits that show him that like basically that the nuclear bomb 
kind of fucked up humanity's. Con- I guess that's the idea. Like the nuclear <laughs> bomb fucked up humanity's connection to this field. Yeah, I think so. And there's some kind of purification coming, uh, which I guess is this just sort of like utopian future that will happen. Yeah, so I guess it kind of sets up what's going on, like what's happening with the like the continuity issues that they were sort of brought up in the second volume, mm. but really weren't flushed out. But I guess this is the time where we should say that, you know, there should be a trigger warning. Like, I mean, okay, the, obviously there's a lot of drug use in the early issues, but things get a lot more serious. There's issues there that might be disturbing. I mean, there's, there's child death. Yes. That's a big one. And there's more violence, I think, generally in this last part of the series than there is in the other one. But while Buddy is having his vision of learning about his powers, Highwater has a vision of an enormous eagle that rains blood and feathers on him. Uh... And he's like connected to it. This is this is my body. This is my blood. Unbury me. Uh, and then they come out of the trip, and they're like, "Wow, wasn't that wild? I guess you can, uh, you know, you can use your uh, powers anywhere, huh?" And then the fox shows up, and he's like, "Hey, uh, it's not over, guys." Yeah. Um, that was just like part one. But then the issue ends with Agent Lennox arriving at Buddy's house while he's yeah. Home. And I think we know that Agent Lennox, whenever he shows up, nothing good is going to happen. Uh, but the next issue basically picks up with Buddy and Highwater where it left off. And Buddy sees this, like, field of red. He falls into the eye of a flying whale who tells them that everything you have ever known, everything that is, was, and shall be, it's only a hallucination. And here is the first secret. Everything is connected. And we see another version of his origin story uh, recapped to him. Well, I think this is, I mean, it was kind of confusing in the last issue where we kept seeing, like, variations of Buddy's origin stories that were changing Mm -hmm. depending on what was happening with the yellow aliens and how they were trying to put Buddy back together. So I think even in Buddy's mind, he, he, he never reconciled the memory of an older man who was Animal Man and his version of the younger Animal Man that's married to Ellen in in the comics right now. Yeah, so we see what's supposed to be the solidified version of his story, and he kind of falls through the page. So the blood thing, I want to explain the blood thing for people who don't get it. Yeah, that Uh, would be me. There's the blood imagery here where he's falling through this, like, red spiral, um, and there's, like, red in between the panels where they're showing his origin, and then that bleeds out into this spiral with white that Buddy falls through. The blood showers on... Uh, Dr. Highwater when he sees his spirit animal, the, the eagle. So the space in between, um, panels in a comic is called the bleed. Okay. That's basically it here, right? The bleed, the blood, it represents the space in between the comics, in between our world and the world in the comics, between fiction and reality. That's what the blood re- represents here, I believe. I also think it's interesting that Highwater's uh, spiritual, his sort of peyote experience is a spiritual experience, and Buddy's is more like a scientific and practical experience. Mm-hmm. But they're both linked because they're both in tune with animals in a different way. High water from the cultural aspects of his heritage, mm-hmm. and and Animal Man Buddy's for just basically being Animal Man and the morphologic field. It kind of gives me, too, this impression that, like, Marson is saying that every person who is in 
no matter how spiritually attuned you are, you're connected to the morphological field in some way. Yeah, yeah. I think that's exactly what's happening. So Buddy falls through the bleed into this white space and encounters the older, original version of himself. The OG animal man who's older with the haircut and he explains that like they overwrote his life with Buddy's life. I think it's kind of, if you're not clear from the first two volumes, this is starting to hit home the concept that Morrison is getting at, where they are saying that the continuity adjustments, like, I think he's he's talking about, like, comics, but he's also talking about, like, the comics publishing machine that kind of, like, erases things to fit the continuity for the way that they want to sell comics in that way, and I think like Marson is saying that they are both a part of the problem because they do that continuity thing, but mm. then also they are sort of benefiting from it because it's allowing them to write new modern comics. Yeah, yeah. So we, but we get this. There's also this existential horror of like the original Animal Man knows he's being erased and he, that he's not real anymore. As far as the comics are concerned, that that his version of events are not the version of events that happened anymore, and he fades into nothingness. And then he said, and then we get this voiceover that's like, then turn around and you'll see the third secret. And Buddy turns around, and we get a full page of his head, and he says, "I can see you." I think this panel where he says, "I can see you," and he's looking directly at you, is like all over the internet and it's been discussed like mm-hmm. you know it's, a it's, lot it's kind of like sort of one of the iconic panels from this series and it really sort of hits home that like it's kind of like that part in metafiction where they break through that third wall and then you know it's kind of like you know i just finished reading charlie kaufman's aunt kind and mm-hmm. i talked a lot about at it with you but like at that point where the characters in the book turn around and talk directly to the people reading the book. It's kind of the same thing. It's like, oh, now you are both a passive observer because you're reading this comic, but now you're a part of it and you're part of the plot. Yeah, so the three secrets that have been revealed to Buddy are everything is connected, reality is mutable, you're a colorful character. Yes. <laughs> People can, there's an audience watching you or reading you. Yeah. Uh, and then he sort of returns to reality, kind of. They're like still sitting on the mesa, but it's like surrounded by water, high water. And they have this discussion where Buddy basically reveals, starts to tell high water about the secrets. And then high water starts to rationalize them. This is where it's important that he's a physicist, right? Right. And they get at this idea that perhaps what Buddy is seeing, when he thinks that he's seeing the space between the panels and the audience and that he's in a comic, is that he's actually getting at this idea, at the idea of the implicate order, uh, David Bohm's theory of the implicate order, uh, that reality is unfolded out of a higher state, the implicate order. The implicate order is a vast sea of potential. This is where they get at the idea, they, they draw the comparison... Uh, between the, what Buddy is perceiving as like the higher reality of the the real world and the, this idea of the implicate order, the Aboriginal dream time, and uh, what the Yaqui 
the Yaqui Indians called the Nagul. It's like the primal reality. So I think this is a thing where this benefits that similar stories don't, where it's not just a story about comics and comic continuity, right? It's a story that's using the idea of comics and comic continuity as a metaphor to explore larger ideas about the nature of reality. Yeah, and I think, I mean, if you think about, like, the the characters in the comic books that are being marginalized because of continuity, it also speaks about, like, the inequality of, like, society. Mm-hmm. Because I think, he, like, later on he'll talk about, like, uh, the value of secondary versus primary characters, which I think is pretty important in comic books. And, like, he says, there, I mean, he talks about this when we see in the second volume, who, who are we talking about? Morrison. They. They. Where we'd see, like, some of the characters, the older characters, like the, the, Man in the Red Mask is mm-hmm. like from the 1940s, and then you see some of the older characters come into play in this volume. But also, you see some of the less important characters being elevated to important roles, which I think is something that Morrison is doing. Yeah, we'll get that when we get to Limbo. So there's some interesting developments with the characters that show up in Limbo. Uh, but another thing that Buddy talk, starts talking about when he's talking to Highwater is. Um, those guys from the first volume, the hunters, he's like, they attacked and assaulted his wife in the woods. And like, why was there never a trial? Why didn't we even question that there was a trial? And that's like, yeah, you never, you don't see that in comics. The bad guys, unless they're really important, they just disappear once they're dealt with. And he starts to, like, he starts to piece together that his world is structured by plot and not by causal reality. Well, I think that's a big thing about... I mean, that's, like, the same thing with, like, action shows and, like, movie Mm -hmm. series, things like Star Wars and things like that. If you accounted for, like, every bad guy that was beaten up by a superhero or, like, every thug or henchman that has been, like, you know, comes into a fight or whatever, there would be thousands of people that you would need to, like, account for as, like, secondary characters. Yeah, and then a giant whale shows up and eats them both. Of course. And things get really wild. There's this crazy page where Buddy has fallen through the panels, and he's reaching back into the... It's like three panels on top of each other, and he's fallen out, and he's really big next to them. And he's reaching back into the last panel, and Highwater is, like, recoiling from Buddy's now giant hand. Yeah. Because it's, like, playing with the perspective. Uh, And then Highwater gets tricked into jumping off the mesa by the eagle. I like that, because then the eagle's like, why would you trust me? That'll teach you to listen to <laughs> talking eagles. But then he wakes up, and he's back on the mesa, and he starts laughing, because, like, oh, he's seen the joke of it, I guess. And then they come out of the uh, the dream, and they, they start having, you know, another conversation, and this is where Highwater points out, like, oh, you know, you can, you can, uh, you and, can, uh... Yeah, you never worry about travel, you just show up where you need to be, and... Yeah, but he's also, like, it's really over, and he's like, oh, that's proof that we're not in a story, because why would somebody write such terrible dialogue? <laughs> but he explains the thing about connecting to all the other animals, and then in the, the sequence ends with uh, Highwater saying, what did Poe say? Yes, all that we see or, deem, or seem is but a dream within a dream. Buddy returns home, and his family has been murdered. And it's horrific. Yeah, and it's kind of like... I, but I think it's effective because you get lulled into this, like, 
warm fuzzies of like Buddy and his you know devoted family, and he's a good father, and Ellen is a good companion, mm-hmm. and and then so then so it's even more shocking that like they would just be killed off in a very horrific way. I mean, this is very graphic where where they show this. When they're getting eaten by the whale, the, like, voice of, like, the universe or the whale or the fox or whatever says, like, I'm sorry, the, the truth comes at a price. And you think it's initially about them getting eaten by a whale and experiencing this, like, crazy existential horror. But I think it's actually that, like, because of the rules of narrative, for you to reach this epiphany, we have to take something away from you and make you suffer. Like, that's the, that's how stories are ostensibly supposed to work, so the writer kills off your family. Which is the thing that I like the least about this. I don't really... I, I think this is... You can tell that Morrison is a young person writing this story. Because, because that is a very young person's story decision to make. Well, because it's kind of like you think, like, with the rest of the issues that you've read, that he'll come back and he'll solve the mystery of, like, what's happening. Yeah. Which he does in a way, but he's spurred by, like, a darker intent. Yeah, we see Lennox go to the, uh, the uh, you know, the rich douchebags who hired him, and they're like, we don't, we're not worried about Animal Man coming to kill this one, he's Animal Man. And two, we have this big mech suit called the Bug Man. Yeah, of course. And then we get a little bit more of the Psycho Pirate losing his shit in Arkham Asylum. Buddy has a conversation with Mr. Niedermeyer where we find out that Mr. Niedermeyer is a Holocaust survivor. Yeah. And he says that he was saved by this guy who then quoted something to him that he thinks is from the Bible. Where he said, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And then that guy was gassed in Auschwitz. The interesting thing about this is that uh, is from the Bible. That's from Corinthians, which is the New Testament, which means that the guy who saved him and then was executed was a Christian, presumably. Uh, I don't know what that means or if that means anything here, but there's some context for that story, I guess. Yeah, and I think it, I mean, this adds, expect that Buddy is not dealing well with this, with the death of his family. And in fact, he is sinking more and more into depression and he's becoming more and more angry and kind of isolated. And even though his friends and family and even the Justice League are trying to reach out to him, he really can't connect with them because he's dealing with this sort of overwhelming like sadness that he's dealing with because of the death of his family. Yeah, there's a funeral. Marsha Manor is at the funeral. Didn't uh, wear like a suit or anything. Just a big, big green guy in a blue cape hanging out at the funeral. Well, he has to be his 100% authentic Martian Manhunter self at all times. Yeah, and they, um, he takes a leave from the Justice League. We get some explanation of this Bugman thing and how powerful it is. This is, like, the Bugman is 100% like a comment on, like, corporate greed and the effect it has on the environment. Because he has, like, powers where he, like... Shoots pesticides yes. out. It's like horrible. It's like the worst Eco robot suit. Yeah. It has like hypodermic needles and shoots sulfuric <laughs> acid on its hand. It's like, it's just a horrible nightmare of like what, uh, what could industry make if it just didn't care? Because it doesn't care. And it makes this thing, the bug man. I mean, um, if it could just, like, shoot out refined sugar, then it would be, like... It's kind of, yeah, it's it got rocket boots powered by high fructose corn syrup. <laughs> um, but uh, another trigger warning, though, because Buddy contemplates suicide at one point, and there's this really harrowing, like, 
scene where he's like all ragged and gaunt and he smashes his head on the mirror, which gives him an idea. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This and, is like where strange bedfellows, you know. Yeah. He's in such an, a desperate place that he kind of contemplates some really dark things. And then he gets a call from the mirror master. Oh, there's also this part where he talks to the cops and they suggest that maybe they, he used a legal teleportation technology to hack into his Justice League teleporter. But we know that he just walked up to the door. I think this is a commentary on like police investigations and stuff. Well, it, doesn't it turn out that he knocked on a door and Alan sent him away and that he used the teleporter? Oh, maybe that is what He it had is. a teleporter in an unmarked van that was parked outside. Yeah. So, Buddy cuts his hair. Oh, yeah. He, he really, like, this is like the third manifestation of Buddy. Yeah. He puts on this blue and white, like, dark colored costume and leather boots from when he was a young punk animal skins a leather jacket yes uh the fun- weird thing about this is this costume is basically used as the template for his costume in the like 2011 reboot um but yeah i think it's also supposed to isn't it like a kind of like the costume that he had before he became like aware of the role that animals played in society yeah i guess basically but so he puts he's got this haircut is horrible. Uh, they well, just, it's like 1989, so yeah, he definitely is well, becoming like a British. He, it looks like he just like fired punk cuts off all of his long hair with scissors, so it's all uneven. Uh, but basically, what's happening here is that the Mirror Master is mad because uh, they they stiffed him on the payment, and, and he, he has. A- beef with Lennox for what happened to him in the previous volume. Yeah, and he's turned down the job because he doesn't want to kill a family. Right. Uh, and he, and apparently there was a, there was a, the phone rang right before Lennox showed up and apparently that was him trying and being too late to warn her about what was happening. And so they team up, and this reminds me a lot of the sequence where Swamp Thing gets revenge on the corporate executives. I think this is, all, yeah, it does, but I think it's also interesting that the Mirror Master doesn't warn Ellen because he cares about Animal Man. He warns him because he likes Ellen and respects her, even though she kicked his butt when he came to invade her house. Yeah. Uh, and then I guess also Lennox is 100% like an evil corporation because he doesn't even care. I mean, he kills children and doesn't even blink. Yeah. Duffo apparently does drugs because we see him doing something. Injecting something in his hotel room. I don't know if that's a super important detail, but that is something well, that they have to go out of their way to establish. I think he's sort of injecting himself with some kind of, like, enhancing thing. Because it's doesn't he eventually become part of... Oh, like, it's insulin. He's just diabetic. He's just diabetic. Uh, weird. I don't know why that detail's there. Oh, do you think it's because they have so Like, because he... They're, like... I don't know, he works for big... I have no idea why... I don't know why it's important to establish that he's diabetic. Maybe that explains why they have the hypodermic needles in the bug man. I don't know. But so there's the sequence of Buddy and... and It doesn't make you like him anymore. No, no. Buddy and the Mirror Master taking out these corporate executives. They pull one guy off his fishing boat. Well, I guess there's three... There's three really big corporate bigwigs that are... That hire Lennox. To kill Buddy's family. 
as sort of the fallout for his eco-vigilantism that he's been doing. And then I guess that's what, when the Mirror Master, and there's a great scene in there. I mean, even though it's very violent and graphic. So they decide that Buddy wants to get revenge on Lennox and the three businessmen who killed his family, and the Mirror Master wants to get paid. And I think it's great at one point, he says, write me a check, which is so 1980s. Yeah. Like, write me a check. And then he's like, and while you're at it, write a check for Greenpeace. Yeah, yeah. So the first guy they go after, they pull him off of his boat into the ocean. The second guy, he's golfing. This is the one that reminded me the most of the Swamp Thing thing. And Buddy pulls him into and seals him in a tunnel underground. And then the last guy is in the, like, the sky, the, you know, their, their skyscraper office, and he's showing Lennox the Bugman, because they've, like, both hold, held up there, hold up there, because they know somebody's coming for them. And B- Buddy stops and sends some money to Greenpeace <laughs> while they're on their way there. So that it's like, there's still some of the old animal man in there. And then they ambush this guy in the bathroom, and chase him out into the hallway, which is where Mirror Master makes him write the check for to him and to Greenpeace. Then the Bugman shows up, and Mirror Master holds him off a bit with his like mirror gun that he's not even entirely sure what it does. Yes. And then the this guy runs into an elevator, and then using super strength, Buddy punches the elevator out of the building. I think this is. This is where you realize that Morrison is like an 80s British punk. Oh, for sure. Yeah, because it's like he's in the like executive washroom in like this giant like skyscraper and then he just gets like literally kicked out of the building. I think they're all, all the people working on this are like that because at the corner of the, when he punches them out of the elevator, at the corner of the panel is like the beginning of a Coca-Cola billboard yeah it's definitely like put on the clash and listen to it and like read this and get angry at like the greed of corporate america especially so then buddy fights lennox who's inside the bug man and the way he uh defeats him is he takes the power of a fly to experience time slower than a human being and uses that to up his reaction speed so he can take the power of an electric eel and electrify the floor and short out the armor. And then he puts on this glove, which I think is supposed to be, I can't remember her name, but the totem uh, right. person with the mask, it's like her glove with the claws on it, and does something, um, something that causes uh, Mirror Master to say, you made a right dog's dinner with old Lennox, eh? <laughs> so... Pretty fucked up, whatever he does, and he's just, like, broken at this point. He's, like, curled up, like, in the fetal position, and then he just says, I can fix it, I can fix it all, I've had an idea, a time machine, all I need is a time machine. And that's when we start to realize, and it's confirmed immediately by the cover of the next issue, that that was Buddy traveling through time, the ghostly figure that kept showing up earlier on, trying to leave messages. And it makes sense because the, we realize who the ghostly figure is. And then also we realize the significance of the 927, which is like in the window and then it's marked on the calendar. The and Ouija board. The Ouija board and all the things that sort of make you think that there's like some kind of supernatural creature that is hunting Buddy's family. You realize that it's actually Buddy from the future. And I feel like this is a really interesting 
take on like grief. Yeah. Because like he gets the time machine, like you know, we'll talk about that. But he gets the time machine and he goes back in time, and there's like this recurring theme of where he talks about like the weight of the time machine, even though it doesn't exist in the time that he's at, but he carries it around and it becomes like a huge burden. Yeah, and he's like like a ghost. Like, it's like a version of time travel. It's the most unsatisfying Mm -hmm. version of time travel where he goes back in time and he can basically just see things. He can't do anything. He's got this weight pulling him down. He can't escape the reality of their death. Like, yeah, it is definitely a metaphor for grief. But explain to me where he gets the time machine from. Uh, from your boy and mine, Rip Hunter, the Time Master. Okay. Um, there he's doing time travel stuff with like Booster Gold. They're they're like going on time missions, and he shows up on under false pretense. First, he tries to get the Time Commander, the villain from the Paris issue, which would make sense, but he can't he can't function, I guess, because his because I guess well, who's the weirdo from the Justice League? Metamorpho broke his. Yeah, that weirdo broke his. Yeah, broke his uh, his time uh, hourglass, so he can't do anything. So okay. then he tricks Rip Hunter into giving him a, a time uh, machine, which is maybe slightly busted. And Booster Gold's like, "What? You lied? What kind of superhero are you?" Which is ironic because super, Booster Gold's thing is that he lies constantly. <laughs> um, but then we get to cut back to Arkham Asylum. We get more of the Psycho Pirate. He picks up an issue of The Flash. I forget what the... I think... Uh, I can't remember the exact number, but that issue of The Flash that he picks up is the issue that establishes the multiverse. Okay. For the first time. It's where the Silver Age Flash meets the Golden Age Flash, who's from another world. I think that's a pivotal plot point that's important because all of this stems from... The Infinite Crisis issue, you know, that they deal with that and how it affects Buddy. And I think that circles back to be yeah. important. Just to be clear, because we did talk about Infinite Crisis in our Swamp Thing episode. I don't know if we talked about the way that ends. But the way that Infinite Crisis ends is that the multiverse is so damaged by an antimatter attack by the anti-monitor. Um, who is, of course, the opposite of the monitor. Which means that while the monitor looks like... a bassist in a prog rock band, the anti-monitor looks like a giant robot ghost with a whale mouth. Um, but <laughs> they have to fuse all of the worlds together. So all the, every world in the multiverse basically, except for Earth 1, is destroyed and everything is folded together. Uh, which means all of the characters and stories that took place on the other worlds are wiped from existence. There are some concessions made Golden Age Superman gets to go to Special Heaven, uh, which is then later retconned into actually being Special Hell. No, I want to just quickly go back to when it's revealed that Buddy is the one who's haunting his family. It's interesting that it's drawn in a completely different way. So when the in the first and second volume, when there's hints that they may be getting haunted by some kind of supernatural creature... It's drawn one way, but when you see it from Buddy's point of view, it's drawn completely different. Oh, this issue is a different artist, too. This is Paris Collins and Steve Montana, which might be part of why it looks different. Um, but yeah, so Buddy takes the time machine and travels back, but uh, he says goodbye to the cat. But if something goes wrong, and there's this, like, explosion, and he spirals through this, like, wild breakdown of the panels... We see glimpses of other characters. I don't actually recognize most of these. We see the two Flashes. 
We see Swamp Thing. We see Kid Eternity at the bottom, who is a character that Morrison will later do a gritty reboot of. Um, I don't know who the guy in the helmet is or the dude that looks like Zeus. What issue is this? This is issue 22. Okay. But we just get glimpses of these characters that are, I guess, important to time. Cut this out, but I did print out these because it tells you who the characters are. Oh, let's see. Um, Kitty Turney, Mr. Keeper, Lord of Time. So all time-related. Swamp super, Thing. Yeah, just time. Superhero. All time-related characters. Uh, I guess that's Lord of Time must be the guy in the helmet. and Or that's the guy that looks like Zeus. But he goes back in time. And so we get the all those sequences where that character showed up. We get to see them recontextualized. And rather than being mysterious, ghostly figure, it's this desperate, grieving buddy trying to reach out to change the fate of his family and failing continually. Then he has the, the conversation with Maxine. He's the one that moves Ellen's, like, wash jar yeah. for her painting mm-hmm. during the time when Buddy is in uh, Africa. Also, there's a one panel of ghost future grieving Buddy's face while he's trying to move the jar. That's very funny. <laughs> he's, like, straining so hard. He tries to communicate with Cliff through the Ouija board. And then he has his, like, little meet-up with, you know, past Buddy, who references, oh, like... We, we also see him write 927 on the window. Yeah, that was, like, we, that was like a cliffhanger, I think. Um, but we see him talk to past Buddy, who's like, oh, I saw you when I was 10. And we see, you know, this flashback where he sees himself almost run into him with a bike, and then he falls off, and his dad's there. And you realize they've never really talked about Buddy's dad, even though so much of the comics is about him as a dad. Uh, and he just like falls down in grief and he can't change anything and he sticks around in the past here in like the 60s and he goes off and he sits on a bench and is approached by a mysterious figure and of course it is our boy the Phantom Stranger that's right the boys are kind of sort of back in town (laughs) in this issue because not only do we get well in the next issue that is uh, not only do we get the Phantom Stranger, but we also get Jason Blood, a.k.a. the demon, Entrigan. Yes, and then also the Immortal. yellow aliens are back. Yeah. They so appear to hunt. who's who of secondary characters in the... But I, it's weird that he, like, the stranger shows up, like, inexplicably. Like, what, like, how does he know that, like, Buddy's there and that Buddy needs... I think you can just sense when things are, like, wrong in the world. Okay. There's a nice detail where they're describing where he's talking about how his, everything about his outfit is like immaculate. Everything except about him is, everything about him is immaculate except for his shoes. The heels worn down as if by endless walking. Yes. He's he's always on the move. Uh, and he's got his penmanship medal on with his turtleneck and his hat. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Great design on the Phantom Stranger. Uh, yeah, the yellow aliens appear to high water and they tell him that like, uh, the, that the end is coming and that he has to go do something. And this is like cutting between him and the psycho pirate in Arkham Asylum. who has got like a wanted poster for Ultraman who we'll get to. He shows up. I think the psycho pirate clearly causes the second crisis. Yeah. Which I think is a reference to the first crisis. But I think also at this point you start to see a lot of characters from like the different numbered Earths, which were very confusing to me, which you explained to me very succinctly in the uh, Swamp Thing series, 
But I think that becomes like part of like the confusion because there's characters from different sort of continuity corrections and different Earths. You know, I think you talked about that, like the Earths come about because they want to do this great sort of continuity like cleanup. Mm -hmm. Well, there's like... Yeah, the the worlds are their the multiple worlds are their first solution to the continuity problems. Where they're like, okay, if the stories don't reconcile together, that means that one of those stories took place on a different Earth than the other one. That's like their initial explanation, and then they end up making too many Earths, and they think it gets too confusing, which is why they end up doing the Infinite Crisis. This goes a little wild because we get a bunch of characters that are from pre-established now erased Earths, and also like a bunch of original characters that Morrison. And crew made up. Let's talk about this panel of the Psycho Pirate where you said that, like, the stranger has a great costume. Mm. He puts on this giant yellow mask that he calls the Medusa mask. And then he has, like, this weird sort of Harlequin costume that he wears with this giant cape. It's, like, red and black checkered. He has comedy and tragedy masks on his chest. He has a Dracula collar. This, his cape actually looks exactly like the cape I used to wear as a kid. Um, I think there's important things to note here. One, there's a little tiny copy of Watchmen. Yes. And there's a Devo record. There's also a, a timely, now, Mondale Wins newspaper. Uh, but there's a bunch of things that hint that he's got stuff. Stuff from other dead universes has been leaking out of his brain and into reality. Because he's got the Ultraman wanted poster. He's got a wanted poster for Abraham Lincoln. Who's wanted for treason, and it has a pound symbol. Yes. So, kind of hinting that maybe, like, the British won the war, the American Revolution. Yeah, he's got, I think, like, a Stradivarius. He's got a Green Lantern comic. And he's got a poster, a propaganda poster that says, One Nation Under God, with Hitler standing under an American flag. It's definitely, like, some Philip K. Dick, like, high Man in the High Castle stuff going on there. Yeah. Uh, and so. And there's a super cat. Yeah, so all these, so there's a bunch of characters bleeding. He, he leaves his cell and starts wandering around the asylum and a bunch of characters start phasing in and out of reality or from alternate worlds. So we see Owlman, who is the Batman equivalent from Earth 3, which is the world where all the superheroes are evil. Or all the superheroes are replaced with, all, every character that is a superhero in our world is a supervillain, in the regular world, is a supervillain in that world. So it's like opposite world? Yeah, so Ultraman and Owlman both come from that world, and they're supervillain versions of Superman and Batman. Uh, he sees Streaky the Supercat. So post-crisis, they only wanted Superman to be the only surviving Kryptonian. So all the other Kryptonian characters, Supergirl, Superboy, Streaky the Supercat, Crypto the Superdog, Comet the Superhorse, and Beppo the Supermonkey, <laughs> were all erased from continuity at this point. So he sees Streaky, who I just, you know, I'm sure this comes as no surprise to you or the readers, but I love Streaky the Super Cat. <laughs> of course you I do. also like Crypto the Super Dog, but I particularly like Streaky. Because I love the idea of, like, he has Superman powers and he's a cat, but, like, he's never going to use them. He's a cat. He just wants to lay around all day. <laughs> like, I think there's a lot of great comedic potential with Streaky that has never been explored. Explored. But then he starts wandering down the halls, and he runs into another old friend of ours, who's always not getting broken out of Arkham Asylum by other supervillains, because everyone hates him. It's the Scarecrow. (laughs) Yeah, he's always like, hey, hey, I'm in here. And they're like, no, we hate you. (laughs) He literally says that he doesn't like him. He says, you are the most boring, pedantic creep I've ever met in my entire life. We have nothing in common. (laughs) 
Because he tries to be like, we're both like emotions or whatever. But he's like, no, you suck. And the scarecrow's like, nah, I didn't even want to go anyway. And then he runs into this like mass of like kind of sort of ghosts of these characters that have been erased from existence. We see most prominently because they're in in color and they're not like gray silhouettes are powering Ultraman and Johnny Quick, who are all from the crime syndicate. They're all from the same world. And then at the bottom of the panel, that's Detective Chimp. Okay, (laughs) he's a chimp that's followed by an alien parasite that made him intelligent. He became a detective. I think that's his origin. Yeah, he comes back later. He's brought back into existence and becomes, for a brief time, kind of an important character in the like mystical side of the DC universe. Uh, and so, like, they start talking about, like, they basically remember getting erased from existence and are confused as to why they exist now. And it starts to bring up this idea that they basically exist because the psycho pirate remembers them. Yeah, and I think it, they, the yellow aliens tell Highwater that he really doesn't have any choice in what's going on. And, in fact, they show him these alternate, like, four different versions of Arkham from four different Earths that are sort of floating in and out of reality on on the current Earth. Yeah. Um, and they show up, and then Highwater's like, I thought we needed, like, Animal Man. And they're like, well, he's out of reach currently because he's in, in time and space, drift in time and space. But they all have to play their roles in this story. But he's technically in the 70s in some kind of, like, superhero support group having cocktails. Yeah, he passes by a Barbarella uh, marquee. Yeah, it's the 70s. Uh, and he meets up with this meeting of immortals where they're like, yeah, it's boring being immortal, so we we meet up from time to time to swap stories, and that really keeps us going. And it's like, you guys, like, there, you, they, there's a... You could have just joined up with Hob and, and Sandman. Yeah. There's a whole other... I guess that's not happening currently. There's a whole other superhero, super immortal support group happening over there. Uh, <laughs> I wish they... Well, it doesn't work because of the 70s. It would be really funny if they panned over and Hob and Morpheus were, like, at the table across from <laughs> them having, like, a cappuccino. I like how they're, like, talking about, like, oh, it's so difficult to be immortal and time is very boring, you know? And then Buddy's just like, well, things aren't going so well for me either. Yeah. And so the immortal man is... is He's like John Lennon. He's like got like a Beatles haircut, and he's wearing like a you know like a Mandarin collar paisley shirt with a medallion. And he's like, Animal Man's like, we're going to meet eventually. And he's like, wow, far out, dude. <laughs> and they start having this conversation about like Buddy's suffering. And Buddy wants a Perrier, which is hilarious. And they don't know what that is. Cause, <laughs> um, but they're basically their viewpoints are like uh, they treat Buddy like he's a teenager. Like Buddy's very like a, aggressive and like confrontational, and he's sitting there with his chair backwards, and you know they're trying to like give him some advice, and he's like, whatever. Yeah, well, I mean, he is from their perspective basically a teenager. Uh, but I thought this issue was wild when they start showing all these different characters showing up like at one point like they're, they're the whole thing with the butterfly which is always hit very hard about like changing the past and changing the future with the whole be- butterfly yeah. and then Jason Blood kills a butterfly with his bare hands and, like the basically the perspective that the two of them offer is like Mortal Man is like you're no good to people dead and you have to keep going and like there's really no point of like falling into despair or whatever and Jason Blood's thing is like 
death is this inevitable constant force and it really doesn't give a shit about you. So it's really pointless for you to waffle back and forth about whether or not people should die or how to undo death or whether or not you should heal yourself because we're just all going to die eventually anyway, even me, even though I'm half of a demon. So these secondary characters that are showing up, are they real characters? Some of them are. Because, I mean, God, like, there's that one with the swastika on his belt. That's a real guy. He's a villain. The Uberman. Um, or I think a version of him exists, but this is a version that's from a parallel world where, uh... And the guy Earth. with the turban and... That's Sargon the Saucer. He's real. Aqua Girl is there. The Sunshine Superman, uh, a Speed Freak and Magic Lantern from the Love Syndicate of Dream World are new characters. Morrison will later use them in other stuff, too. Okay. Um, Sunshine Superman obviously is named after the Donovan song. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what's up with these weird Batman and Robin. Um, They're like off-brand Batman and Robin. Yeah. Uh, and, like, the, the second pirate is, like, loving this. He's so happy that all these characters are there, but now he's starting to fade, right? He's dwelling in nostalgia. He's obsessed with these forgotten characters, and he's being pulled out of reality himself because of this, right? Yeah. And then, yeah, we have more of Buddy talking to, to the two, to the immortals, and then he's ultimately, like, presented with this choice. He says, you're either on the side of life, or you're on, immortal man is saying this. You're on the side of death. Which is it going to be? And then Buddy starts to think about, like, the things that he cares about, about the the animals suffering and about everything he's been through. And he realizes that, like, he's on the side of life. But there's also, when you get to the cu- couple pages in, you do see the cat use his superpowers to open up a can of cat food. Yeah. Uh, he uses his ray. His, uh, um, his, uh, heat vision. But so Buddy fades back into like the present and things are still going haywire at Arkham Asylum. Uh, Highwater's walking around with the aliens and he's telling them about how like this is disturbing like the nature of reality and none of these things are supposed to exist. And, um, the psycho pirate is sort of like fading out and then he becomes fixated on a bad idea. A bad world where everything's gone wrong. Who makes these awful worlds? Whose idea was this? And, I mean, I think it's funny because it definitely reads, like, now. Now, in a post-Snyder cut world, I feel like this reads slightly different than it did at the time. This, I think, was a hit back at, like, people trying to emulate Watchmen and trying to integrate... I mean, this is the same point that, like, all of these writers make. More makes the same point. Mark Wade makes the same point. Of, a, the like, trying to graft these overly serious, deadly dark, cynical stories under these bright, colorful superheroes is a bad idea. Um, And so there's this idea of this, like, parasitic world, basically, which Morrison is right. Like, they predicted it. This idea of of this world where Overman, the the evil government-sanctioned Superman who where every character that exists is an extension of him, like, this feels so much like every bad cinematic universe... The amazing Spider-Man tying all of the villains' origins into Spider-Man. The, even the MCU making Spider-Man, like, Iron Man's sidekick. Like, all of this, this idea of, like, everything needs to be connected, everything needs to be important, everything needs to be dark and cynical, has infected the world and is a, a net negative on the artistic landscape. And the Psycho Pirate can't stop fixating on this awful world where their Superman equivalent is, like, a murderer with a red, white, and blue cape. 
who is he a real character? No, this is a new character for this. He does show up later. I, th- I think Morrison brings him back at some point. Uh, but he's got this doomsday bomb and he fights Bizarro. Yeah, but he comes into reality because Psycho Pirate can't stop thinking about him. And he threatens to destroy everything. Like, Psycho Pirate is so delighted to have all of these weird old characters back, but then almost ruins all of them because he can't stop fixating on this dark story. Which I think is, like, the uh, the other thing. Like, Morrison is getting at the, like, killing off Buddy's family was a bad idea. It was a bad idea, but it's an idea you can't stop thinking about once you get in that headspace. And you, you do it, and it fucks everything up. Like, what Psycho Pirate ends up doing... Like, Morrison brings back all these obscure characters. Morrison and the Psycho Pirate are the same person. They bring back all of these obscure characters. Let's have fun. It's all so weird. I can't stop fixating on, like, the darkness and the suffering, and I fuck it all up. And that's what happens here, right? I think I think this is what's the, the metaphor that's at work. Yeah, and I think you can see also his Psycho Pirate's uh, costume starts to change. It fades in color, and then where it was plain black panels, you now see faces drawn in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. We do see that. Um, he like his suit becomes the panels of a comic. Yes, and then he, you know, the alien tells, is talking to Highwater and says, "Where is Animal Man?" And he said, and he appears. It's okay, I'm here. And basically, there, what we get over this next issue is like everybody trying to sort out what's going on with reality. But while that's happening, Overman, who's like literally drooling at the mouth and swinging a nuclear bomb around like a hammer, is. Like, barging into every scene and fucking everything up. I think there's a really important panel with the alien and high water and Buddy. He says there's a breach in the continuum. And you can see that the panel is partially open and Buddy's hand is reaching out, I guess, into the actual page. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, like you were saying, Overman fights with Bizarro. He kicks Streaky out of... Through the roof of Arkham Asylum. Don't worry, he's fine because he's a super cat. Highwater, the comics start showing up and Highwater's reading them. Buddy jumps like through the comics and through the panel and he shows up just as Overman is like smashing Bizarro to pieces. And it's like they're both twisted reflections of Superman, but Bizarro's fun and lighthearted and Overman is this awful serious mess, uh, who's in a way sillier than Bizarro. Because he's so self-serious. This cracks me up because it's typical, like, buddy. Mm-hmm. Like, they're fighting this huge, intense battle, and there's a doomsday bomb, and then, like, buddy shows up, and people are like, what are we going to do? He starts fighting Ultraman, and at one point, he's just kind of, like, just hit the off button. Yeah, but also, when he shows up to, to fight Ultraman while he's fighting Bizarro, buddy's creeping behind the panels. Yes. He sneaks up on him like Batman, but he does it by, he does it literally the same way Batman does. By moving between the panels. He's aware of the way time moves in comics now. Um, and he freaks out Overman. Yeah, they have their big fight. He's kicking his ass. He pulls him out of the panel and basically causes him to have an existential crisis. Because by realizing that, uh, you know, there's more realities. He can't kill everyone. There's people watching him. He's just a two-dimensional character in a story. And he becomes... One dimensional literally becomes a line and then disappears. Yeah, and I, and then you cut to like Highwater, he's talking to all these secondary characters and he's like, he's got a Justice League comic book and he's showing that him like the, the people, the panels and saying like, look, you're all secondary characters. Like trying to make them understand what's going on and then 
they kind of get this idea that like if no one pays attention to them or they're written out of continuity, they're gone. Morrison got so upset about all of the weird characters they loved getting erased from continuity that he made a whole guy named Dr. Highwater a reasonable, <laughs> intelligent man who could exist in the comic and explain to him explain to them why it is okay for characters to get erased from continuity. By explaining to the characters to get erased from continuity why it's okay for them to be erased from continuity. That they live on forever in the comics. Erasing the story from continuity doesn't erase the story from existence. They live again and again every time someone reads about them. And then later on we get the counterpoint to this with Limbo where it's like, and also... They can always come back. Like, this is like Morrison comforting themselves and, like, you, the reader, and all of the upset, angry nerds, like, that it's okay. It's not, it's okay that the continuity changed. You don't have to worry about it. And it's also, like, because we know that Morrison sees comics as a metaphor for reality, that Highwater sees comics and the fourth wall as a metaphor for the nature of the universe and the implicate order, right? He's, Howard is also talking to us, to, to the viewer. He's laying out this thing where it's like, you know, we all exist infinitely and the time is an illusion and our past is always there and let's like, we'll die and we'll pass away and we won't explicitly exist in the universe as it exists, but we'll always exist in some way and you don't need to be upset about it. Uh, which I think is really nice. But I think Highwater pays the ultimate price. He's sentenced to live in Arkham. He is suffers the ultimate hell, which is remembering all of the old comic book stories and the characters that were in them. <laughs> no! Who could live like that? How could you live knowing who Overman and Ultraman are and having to explain who they are on a podcast? <laughs> no! <laughs> yeah, right. If this was made today, he would definitely have a podcast. But yeah, so, so they, they... But then they... The, Got the, the warden was like, well, he looks happy. <laughs> so with all of that explained, like, basically Psycho Pirate gets to be okay with their the characters being erased from existence and allows himself to fade from existence. Everything explodes into four colors and all that's left behind is the Medusa mask containing the memories of all of the erased, all the dead of the infinite world erased in the Crisis on Infinite Earths. And Highwater puts on the mask to to stand in the breach and hold the gateway shut to keep another crisis from the, like this from happening ever again. And he becomes the new Psycho Pirate, I guess. But he cuts the Gordian knot by switching off Ultra, uh, Overman's bomb. And they're standing up there, and they they begin to forget the original Psycho Pirate, uh, who fades into mist. And we see in real time what it is like for a character to be erased from continuity. And the butterfly passes through him and it's portrayed as like being kind of a peaceful, beautiful thing. That it's not this horrible, like anxious tragedy like we saw with the original Animal Man getting erased. Like now it's been recontextualized as this thing where you, you pass into the, to the infinite memory of the universe. Uh, and the infinite memory of the back issue, Ben. <laughs> Okay, then it cuts back to the buddy being home again with the yellow aliens, and the yellow aliens tell him that that's what Purification Day is. And, and then they disappear, and then we see Buddy, he's back in his original costume. He's gotten some kind of closure in his life. He's not completely over the loss of his family, but he's more back to being himself. 
Yeah, they say, uh, those are our actors, as I foretold, you were all spirits and are melted into air. We can't, we can't escape the, the Shakespeare. Into thin air, and they say, uh, time to go now, time to put aside all worldly things, time for the last adventure. And he opens the door into, like, a misty, otherworldly graveyard. And that's the end of this issue. What do you so without the second crisis or you have any last thoughts on that? I think I laid out my thesis on what this whole thing is and means. Yeah, and I think I think it's pretty clear. It's Morrison dealing with, like you said, their sort of love of the like history of comics and how like the comic book industry will wipe that away in an effort to reboot, you know, reboot a world or whatever. But I mean, I think like also. He did, they don't take any responsibility for the role that they play in it. Oh, if more, if given the, I mean, for, I could tell you from reading other Morrison comics that given the choice, they would never erase anything from continuity. So if and when that has to happen, it's almost always going to be an editorial command. <laughs> but yeah, but I think yeah, but I, I like think this. This is interesting though because like this, like we talked about this being metafiction, and you know, like a literary metafiction. A lot of the sort of metafiction part of where they talk about the process of writing and publishing is a comment on the way that writers are treated by the publishing world. And then this is Morrison using metafiction tools to make a comment about how artists and writers are treated by the comic book publishing industry. Yeah. There's a, there's also a little bit about like why these stories exist. Highwater talks about like the idea that the the higher world, the heaven, the implicate order, our world, is darker and crummier and dirtier and bleaker than the comic world. And this idea that like these characters aren't lesser because they were created, like they were created to be better than us, uh, to be this glimpse of like a, a better world. Well, Which talk- is the thing that I think sometimes, a lot of times comics get bad when they lose sight of that. We talked about this when we talked about a lot with Swamp Thing and with Sandman, that there was this sort of trend at this time for writers to take the more obscure characters and bring them to the forefront. And I think, like, the three series that we talked about, they do this to, like, perfection. Like, we talked about Sandman, which was a reconstituted story arc from Gaiman and then we talked about Swamp Thing and his sort of the the secondary villains that kind of like faded into obscurity that were brought back by uh Moore and now at this point like you said Buddy was sort of a retired character that wasn't maximized and now he is this sort of primary character in this major well, story arc that Morrison is writing. We're about to really get into that. Well, the other thing I want to ask is, what's, how do you feel about all the fate of Dr. Highwater? I feel like you, like, exactly like you said, he, you said he's a stand-in for Morrison. I think he's a stand-in for all comic book fans mm-hmm. that are kind of like, after Infinite Earth or, you know, the Crisis or whatever, they're kind of like, this is bullshit. What about, you know, the Blue Beetle and all these other characters that no one cares about except for... You know, that small encyclopedic niche of, like, fans that know everything about every character. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously I agree. I agree that you agree with me. Um, Mission accomplished. All right, let's get into issue 25, Monkey Puzzle. I like this because this is kind of, he really sort of leans into that whole 
first of all, a comment on how people see writers and artists kind of like, you know, there's that whole thing about modern art where it's like, my kid could draw that. And it's the same thing like with writing. They were like, well, if you give, you know, a monkey a, a typewriter in enough time, he'll like complete the collection. Oh, well, yeah, that's the joke. And Morrison cast themselves as initially in this, the representation of the writer is literally a monkey yeah. that's sitting on a hillside writing the script for this issue. I guess it's like a chimp. They call calling it a monkey, but it, it's like an ape or something. And so Buddy walks out, and he's like, initially this graveyard is all full of, like, extinct animals. We get to see, I forget when they, sh- yeah, there's like a full page. We, we see the whale from the vision quest, but there's a dodo, the great auk. Uh, saber-toothed tiger, uh, T-Rex. Don, yeah, Don. Well. We see an open grave for the Bengal tiger, uh, That's, and the yeah. elephant, and it's like, oh, okay. And then there's like this angel that I don't know what, really know what to make of that. There's this like angel that Buddy's approaching, and then the merry man shows up. Is this an existing character? Uh, yes. I don't really know much about merry man. But I I think he's like a specific parody of a uh, of a writer like, but yo know, he's part of the Inferior Five yeah yeah he's just, I mean he's yeah he's are... a comedy character they were created uh, in the like mid sixties as like a parody of superheroes and he was like their leader I think uh, and but his whole deal is that he's like he's a cartoonist yeah I like how like at one point one of the I mean, it's kind of, she's obviously, he, this is another thing that Morrison talks about is this sort of retiring these, like, inappropriate characters or these stereotypes. And one of them is, like, a sex pot, female super Dumb bunny. Dumb bunny. And at one point she says, you know, what if I could, you know, I could come back. I could get a gritty reboot. Well, they, he, I mean, like, like she someone could write a... me like a feminist. <laughs> well, the thing is, though, like, that's one of the things about this issue is I, uh, I, I cried reading this issue last night because it's just like they come back. They get to come back. Like fairly recently, there was an Inferior Five reboot, and they made it out of limbo. And it's like everything comes back eventually. But like, I think it's funny though because like that whole comment about maybe I could get a gritty reboot. Like everything today from movies and books and TV shows is a gritty reboot of something. I mean they. We're like we live in a world where we're having a gritty reboot of the Powder of Powerpuff Girls. I mean, yeah. On, so, but the thing with the Imperial Five is they all have a, su- a superpower and a huge weakness. So Merry Man is really smart, but he's really weak. Uh, Awkward Man is uh, he's a parody of Aquaman. He is uh, incredibly physically adept in the water, but can barely walk on land. He doesn't have land legs. Uh, the blimp can fly, but he has to have, uh, like, wind pushing him. He just floats. So he has to have, like, a propeller or be in the breeze. The white feather is an archer, but he's, he's a, like, white feather, green arrow. He's a skilled archer, but he can't have anybody looking at him. He has, like, terrible crippling stage fright. And then the dumb, dumb bunny, I think he's always described as she has incredible strength, but terrible grades. Yes, and she's, like, a big... Like a, you know, a huge busted woman in a, like, unitar with big, blowy, blonde, like, fair faucet hair. Yeah. So he meets up with them, but then the, uh, the monkey making, who's writing the issue collapses. Uh, 
I just love the I love the like yeah I love all the details like in this world the like the Joker's car is there because it's like the Joker's still relevant but not him having a car with his own face (laughs) on it um and so he basically explains like hey yo we like Mary Man explains that we got to get that monkey uh he used to be famous but no one's allowed to say his name anymore I don't know what this is in reference to um but we got to get him and take him to the city of formation because that's the only place where they might be able to to save him um. And he explains, like, you know, you were in here once, Animal Man, and you don't remember that. And I don't think you're here permanently again. I think you're just passing through. Uh, and he says, I could hardly believe it when Buwana Beast got out. Yeah. And so this limbo is where characters go when they're not being written, when they're not on the page, when they're not in the popular consciousness. They end up in limbo. We it's see. It's also filled up with tons of pet sidekicks. Well, yeah, because they're not popular anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, not even just pet sidekicks, but just animal characters. You see Captain Carrot, who will come back, and also Morrison continually brings Captain Carrot back. Morrison loves Captain Carrot for some reason. I think because Morrison loves Looney Tunes. We see that with uh, the Coyote Gospel, and like Captain Carrot is like, what if Bugs Bunny was Superman? Uh, yeah, so they start traveling through Limbo. We see uh, the Green Team, who are like teen adventurers, and they're gimmick is that they're rich they came back they got a reboot fairly re- like it well not fairly recently like 10 years ago probably maybe less than that but they came back we see ultra the multi-alien he came back ma hunkle she came back in justice society um these animal sidekicks mostly don't come back though uh gem the saturnian hercules an interesting figure that shows up is this guy in this bottom panel he's wearing like a white pirate shirt with a red and blue mask. That's Quicksilver, who's an early Flash-type character with super speed. He gets brought back in Mark Wade's Flash run and is then combined with other obscure super fast characters to create a composite character named Johnny Mercury. Uh, which, like, what does that mean in the context of Limbo? What happens if you're multiple characters hanging out in Limbo and you get combined together? I don't know, but also there's a sort of... I guess in the late 80s, it's kind of uh, prophetic. He brings back Mr. Freeze. Yeah, that was the thing. Mr. Freeze was obscure, basically, until the animated series revived him. So, yeah. So, he travels... Animal Man travels through this town and is eventually handed the dying monkey by Merry Man. If you're having a brief conversation with a guy who really wants to come back, but his name is the Gay Ghost. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And he wanders off. uh, He meets... Uh, this dude Jason, who was from like a comic called Jason's Quest, uh, he meets the Red Bee, who tricks him into going in the wrong direction because uh, he's just a dick, I guess. He also gets his jacket, and there's like clearly some kind of Buddhist thing going on here. Buddy is giving up his connections, his jacket, which grounds him to the real world. He gives up. He gives Mister Freeze the photo of his family, um, and Mister Freeze is like, "I'd make a formidable enemy for any superhero." <laughs> he's like, he's like, want a job interview, but like. So can you put in a reference for me? Yeah, he meets Nightmaster, who tells him he's going the wrong way. Nightmaster comes back and teams up with Detective Chimp. <laughs> uh, and then he winds up back at his house, where his cat and his dog have turned into skeletons, and the monkey is dead. And then following the script, he cuts a key out of the script the monkey had written, and opens the door and walks out into the muted colors of the real world, and right up to the door of Grant Morrison, who, you want to talk about his outfit? <laughs> It's classic, like, late 80s. Just talk about their outfit. Jesus, I'm fucking it up, too. Yeah, he's got, like, his Doc Martens and his jeans and his button-up shirt. And 
his kind of like you know Morrissey hair. Yeah, uh, I like the cover because the cover is like it's a photo and um, yeah, and he's like kicking Animal Man who's like on this rug, but of course he's holding his their cat. Yeah, because you know that's kind of like the reason for this whole entire story arc. Yeah, we we find out <laughs> like he had like. Poor buddy, he's like laying on the floor, and then you see Morrison with his cat and his Doc Martens and his tight black jeans and his white button up shirt. Her, they're white button up shirt, and they're just kind of like about to like really. They're like resting their foot on him, or if they're kicking him off of the cover, possibly. Like we also get to see a shot of what we've seen continuously in cutaways, which is Morrison's old ass computer. He kind of like. Buddy, like, this one scene, like, Buddy is looking at Morrison, and Morrison kind of looks like Morpheus, I think. They they draw uh, Morrison with, like, feature, like, just unshaded, just white skin and black hair. So they do look like, and, and also because they're wearing, like, a blousey shirt, too. They really do look like, uh... Like Morpheus. But that's maybe intentional, because Morpheus is like, all stories and stuff. So maybe that's an intentional reference to draw the writer to look like Well, I mean, the it story also gap. could be, like, this, when when we get to Sandman. Is Sandman happening at the same time as this? Uh, yes. Because I think I'm this thinking... is right around when Sandman is wrapping up, too, maybe? And we know that Morrison and Neil Gaiman are colleagues. They, they... Yeah. They talk a lot, and you know they're kind of like when uh, when Morrison's uh, I th- like um, Batman run was like nearing its like middle point, and they did like Batman R.I.P. They brought in Gaiman to write like a send off issue to Batman. Like they're contemporaries, they're connected in a lot of people's minds, and I know that they they've never like directly worked on anything together, but I know that they they must <laughs> they must talk or must have talked at some point. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's what I've talked before, like that kind of the trinity of this time. It's called the British Invasion, even though Morrison is Scottish. But like the three pillars are Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, and Grant Morrison. Right. So there could be that connection. It could be that sort of influence. So they have this long ass conversation. This whole issue is a conversation between Grant Morrison and Animal Man. Uh, at one point, Morrison makes Animal Man get angry and throw them through a window, killing them. But then they just get up mm-hmm. and they explain, like, I'm a comic book writer. I write this comic. I write you. I'm responsible for everything you do. But, like, also, you can't en- really enter my world. You're not in the real world. You're in a comic representation of the real world. And I, from my, am inhabiting it. I can go into the comic, but you can't go here because you're a fictional character. I like it. There's two things I really like about this. I like it the one point where Buddy is like, are you writing Doom Patrol? And he, like, picks up one of the... And you can see, like, a, a panel and you can see yeah. some of the characters from Doom Patrol. Yeah, and then Morrison says, yeah, but they don't know it. <laughs> and, like, basically, the crux of this is Buddy's like, why did you do this to me? Like, why did you make my life so shitty? And Morrison is basically like, my cat died. And I was upset. And I was mad about humans hurting animals. And I wanted to use you as a space to do that. And then I eased up on it because I thought I was getting preachy. Well, I think it's pretty clear, like we talked about that, 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 like, 
what was important to Morrison is becomes the themes of what's important to Buddy and you know the whole like eco terrorism story arc and the cruelty to animals and the vegetarianism and in fact he like this is another part where he says like I'm a vegetarian and he says you're a vegetarian because I'm a vegetarian <laughs> yeah he's like you're a vegetarian and Morris is like no you're not I'm a vegetarian <laughs> but yeah it's like I felt like the comic was trying to get animal abuse of the month soapbox I feel too strongly about the subject I thought I was becoming preachy and then. Animal Man is being written by Morrison tells them, I didn't think so. Like, and it's like this internal argument Morrison is having with himself about, like, was I too preachy? What's the purpose of a comic? Like, you know, there's this thesis that's laid out by Highwater about comics being, like, bright and beautiful and this, like, better than reality thing. And Morrison is clearly struggling with, like, how do I stay true to that ethos while still telling a meaningful story? And you know, talked about this thing I talked about where it's like comics provide this catharsis where, um, well, Morrison talks about this directly. Like, at one point, Morrison's like, look, I made you be an animal activist because in real life, I can't really do anything about it except for, you know, join groups and go on marches and stuff. And it's like, I could make you, like, you know, fight the poacher, drop the, the guy who wants to kill the dolphins into the ocean in a way that you can't in real life. But it's like, what does that mean? Like, in reality, what does that actually, like, accomplish? And then there's this part where Morrison's like, you know, people in the letters thought, like, hey, maybe you should fight animal-themed heroes. So, like, here's the shark. And then, like, maybe like, they said maybe you should fight your opposite. So, um, you know, this guy loves to kill and torture animals and thrives on burgers. And he's like, the idea is you fight this guy and you settle the moral argument by beating him into the ground. And so this idea I talked about, like, when we were reading Destroyer about, like, that's kind of one of the things that these, like, superhero and action comics can do that's, like, one of their more important functions is this, like, exploding out this real-world conflicts into these physical superhero struggles, but then there's also this question of, like, but what does that accomplish? It all comes back to, like, what does that accomplish? Why do we make art? It's not really answered. It's a thing Morrison continually struggles with. I like how at some point he says... I know you're all wondering about the fox. Like, like Yeah. One of the least important plot points that he has to, like, explain in excruciating detail. Yeah, they explain that the... Well, they first they send Buddy back home. They say, go home, Buddy. Go home and forget we ever met. And when Buddy returns home, he opens the door and Ellen and the kids are there. So he, I guess Marson at some point has remorse for treating him so harshly. Yeah, and then the very end is Morrison writes, uh, close up on Buddy's face. He's smiling and doesn't know why, but tears start in his eyes. Nothing's wrong at all. Nothing's wrong. Is that the best you can do? And then looks at the picture of his... So the cat died because something punk... It was a, it was a very young cat. Something punctured its lung. And it had like an excruciating like death because it lingered. And he, I guess... They, the cat, I can't, well, I don't know what the cat's name was. J- Jamora? They say the name of it. Jamara. Jarmara. So, so they try to save the cat, and Marson spends a lot of time taking care of the cat and nursing the cat, and then eventually the cat succumbs to its uh, injuries. Yeah, and the, the cat dies... And this is apparently spirals Morrison into a depression that causes them to kill off Buddy's family in the comic. Uh, and then they look at the picture of the cat that they showed Buddy earlier, 
and then walk out and retell the story about Foxy, the fox that lived across the hill that was their imaginary friend that they would signal with the flashlight every night. And they go back out there because it feels like the only important thing to do to connect with this, like, this primal creation of theirs, or perhaps this primal understanding of something bigger in the universe, and to signal out across the moor with the flashlight, and then Morrison walks away thinking that uh, the signal was not returned, and the last panel we see the light coming back One across. of the things that I liked about this conversation that he, Buddy has with Morrison is that Morrison talks about like this whole concept of when you are in my book, I draw and write for you in this way. But when you're in another book, another artist draws you and writes for you. Do you feel any different? Yeah, and Buddy's like, yeah, I guess when I'm with the Justice League, I don't really do anything. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, there's it's like that. Even within one continuity, right? There are multiple versions of the character, right? And I feel like that's. You know, because I think that sort of brings the whole closure to the whole infinite crisis thing. And when they pulled in all the... Like, when we read Swamp Thing, it was kind of confusing about, like, all these secondary characters that we didn't read their books. Mm -hmm. But we were immediately supposed to know who they were and what their thing was. And what they were doing in Swamp Thing for, like, a rando, you know, reason, they would show up. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like Morrison addressed that by saying, like, when you're in another book, you're... Yeah, you're a different person. You're somebody else. Somebody mm-hmm. else is writing you. You have different priorities. You represent different things and explore different themes. Or maybe they just don't care to use you all that much, and you just kind of hang around in the background of Justice League comics not doing anything. I felt like it was a really... I mean, it was strange and very weird, and it took a very weird turn. But I feel like, for closure, it kind of wrapped everything up. And yeah. And it did, even though... It was hard to see, like, Buddy that you cared about have such a terrible time in the last couple of issues. It was nice to see that there was closure at the end. I also think, in a way, because Morrison acknowledges that they're not going to be the last writer to write Amelman, that there's specifically another writer lined up. Like, issue 27 is written by Peter Milligan. There's a whole new writer. I wonder if, in a way, that sequence of having it go so dark... And having Buddy's family killed off was not just an expression of grief at the loss of the cat and powerlessness in the face of the universe. I wonder if it was also a way to instruct to later writers, like, this is not how you write Animal Man. Look at what I'm doing to Animal Man and understand how wrong this feels and then don't do it later. I'm going to bring Buddy's family back and you don't kill them off and you don't make them dark and brooding because that sucks. And it's the most, like, dragging part of this comic. And it's, look at how cathartic it is when Buddy opens the door and nothing's wrong at all and his family's back. Remember that and don't fuck up Buddy. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's exactly what the, you know. I mean, overall, I like the series. I thought it was interesting. It's very, like, 80s, very sort of contemporary of its time you know it talks about the big issues in the late 80s that people Mm -hmm. were dealing with like animal rights and um the role of like humans in the climate change i mean we're starting to see climate change at that time and people are starting to become aware of it i mean it's misguided that they think like recycling is going to save the planet like yeah I mean, but I, I mean, this was I a still... thing where we understood like pollution, but we didn't. The this was when the 
oil companies for actively hiding climate change from us. There's a part where when he when he goes after the uh, executive at the golf course, that guy's talking about. It, I was like, well, you know, they say that the trees actually cause more pollution. Yeah, well, that was a huge thing that Ronald Reagan said when he. Yeah, it's almost like um, every time someone tries to defend Ronald Reagan as not being monstrously evil, um, they're wrong, and that it's probably a good sign that that person's evil. <laughs> and it's not just because of the hate epidemic, even though that is a huge reason why he's evil. Well, I think all of those things, those contemporary issues are reflected in this book in a certain extent. I think that kind of makes it... I mean, Morrison can be preachy, and I think that they kind of hit that really hard, especially the whole, like, meat is murder and animal rights. And, I mean, that scene with the poachers, I mean, that issue with the poachers is really intense. Yeah. I think this is one of those things, though, where... With the time this was written for a while afterwards, that felt like authentic, that like, the I was too preachy. People were like, yes, I agree. This is probably too preachy. And these villains are probably too cartoonishly evil. But it's now that time has passed and we've seen the extent to which things are fucked up. It doesn't really feel preachy anymore to me. It doesn't feel like it's stretching. These guys that kill Buddy's family, they feel real. Like, look at all of the awful things these corporate executives have done. Like, it's the same thing like when we talked about Scrooge. We talked about a Christmas Carol. It's like, for a while, this felt like a caricature. But now we understand that, like, actually these dudes are that evil. But I think also, I think, especially in light of what's been happening, I mean, we, we're living through a pandemic. We're, we're dealing with the... I mean, it's time that we start dealing with these issues that Black Lives Matters are bringing up. But, I mean, some people's reaction just to things like this character depicted on a corporate product is culturally unacceptable and there are people who are defending it like we like we went through this whole like thing on the internet about talking about aunt jemima and how that's a racist figure and there were people like that's part of our history like yeah the op-ed about disneyland being too woke it's ridiculous these people are like the psycho part they can't let go of the idea that things are changing and the things are passing away and they can remember them I guess if they, I guess if you Aunt Jemima makes you feel good, you can always remember Aunt Jemima. Well, it's but also, like, it's who like, cares? Like to say, like in the late '80s, saying yes, maybe having a, a superhero called the Dumb Bunny, who's supposed to be like a dumb blonde, is like inappropriate and insensitive to women. Like yes, that like we need that sort of continuity cleanup in this culture right now. I love that he like pitches her. No, because he's a comic book writer. He's like, yeah, what if she's a kind of psychon? It's like, well, you can see the wheels turning in, the, in like Morrison's head where it's like, yeah, what if it's like ironic or something? Or she hates that she's called Dumb Bunny. And like trying to figure out how to make the character work and putting it in the mouth of this like, ridiculous uh, cartoon caricature of a cartoonist. Well, it's like saying like, um, I mean, we're not going to get into it, but like the whole history of like Wonder Woman, like saying, like, oh, she's a feminist icon, and she was made for blah, blah, blah. We know why she was well, created. like, I don't know. I think she, she was created to make sure that, to make it so that young boys were comfortable with the idea of becoming matriarchy that Will, Dr. William Moulton Marston envisioned. And, you know, if it had worked, the world would probably be a better place. <laughs> no doubt. But. <laughs> but that's the thing, right? Like, even that, like... People are threatened by... I don't know. It's, just, that's not, it's, it's a whole conversation for another time. Morrison wrote a uh, Wonder Woman comic, Wonder Woman Earth 1, and we could read that at some point and talk about it. I don't know. What else do we have to say about Animal Man? 
I liked it too. I love this character. I like all the metafiction stuff and the continuity uh, I like weirdness. his jacket. I like his jacket. I think he's a really... Morrison does a lot to make uh, Animal Man a really compelling character. Oh, we also there's a part where Morrison in the comic... Uh, does like a, hey, I just want to introduce my band r- real fast and like thanks all the artists or the editors that helped them write the comic. Um, also, because this character ends up in a comic and is in the comic uh, and is a separate entity from real world Grant Morrison, the writer sticks around in DC continuity and ends up in an issue of Suicide Squad where they are killed, uh, I think, by werewolves. <laughs> so, so someone had enough of Morrison's. Yeah, I think that maybe was the shouting case. off about animal rights and vegetarianism and just killed them off with a werewolf. Yeah, fitting, very fitting. Yeah, so that's it. That's Animal Man. I mean, there's this comic continues. There's more, but it's by other writers. I have never read any of that because for and I I don't know much about it. It never. It's not one of those things where it's like the post Morrison Animal Man doesn't really have a reputation one way or the other, good or bad, because for a long time it just wasn't collected, and it has recently been entirely collected. I've never read any of it, but maybe at a later date we'll come back and read some of the post Morrison Animal Man stuff. A lot of it is written by writers that I like, Peter Milligan and Tom Veach. Um, so. We might check that out, but I don't know anything about it, really. There was a reboot around, like, 2010 or 2011 that was more of a kind of kind of a mythic fantasy with some kind of new, weird, and horror elements brought in. It wasn't really metafictional um, the way this is. It was more about, like, this mythology with the the red, and it was kind of tied into the Swamp Thing reboot that was happening at the same time. We might read that. That's written by Jeff Lemire. I remember that being pretty good. Um, but for right now, the next thing we're going to read is The Postman Always Rings Twice by James N. Kane. And then we're going to continue our Morrison explanation by moving right into... Uh, we were actually given a very nice segue in this comic because we were going to move right into Doom Patrol with Volume 1, which I believe is called Crawling from the Wreckage. Oh, interesting. I haven't read Doom Patrol, but like I said, I've watched the first two seasons on HBO Max, so I am kind of an expert. Okay, then. And there's another 80s-themed character in the TV show. Is he in the book? Cliff? Well, yes, Cliff. We'll see that... I was thinking about that when uh, Animal Man put on his boots and his jacket. I was like, oh, Morrison loves that look, because that is exactly the outfit that they end up giving... Uh, Robot Man, so... Uh, yeah, Cliff is kind of almost the closest Doom Patrol has to, like, a central character. Uh, so we'll see quite a bit of him in that. Um, but I think that'll be cool to read. It's in some ways weirder than this, and in some ways less weird. The cons- the ideas are maybe weird, but, like, Morrison says, they don't know that they're in a comic book. Well, that's good, because I don't know if I could deal with comic book continuity and metafiction in the same no. comic. Well, all right then. Um spoiler alert, stay tuned. Bye everyone. And remember, I can see you. <laughs> Which is weird because this is a not a visual medium. <laughs>